Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode, and this is Recode Replay. Here's an interview from the stage of the 2017 Code Media Conference in Dana Point, California. You can find full coverage of all the speakers of the conference on recode.net. Now I'm going to hand it off to CNBC's Julia Borston. You've now been at Fox for about two and a half years That's running right. the studio. And, and Fox is really trying to embrace technology. Um, how do you see technology changing the way you're running the studio? Um, well, I certainly feel the, the mandate and the excitement about technology and innovation that, that comes from the very top of the company. But having um, worked my way up th- in the business for the last 30 years, I've had to approach technology from a slightly different perspective. And it really comes down to a basic question that I never imagined I'd have to ask myself, which is, what is a movie? You know, what is it about the experience that we offer and, and, and in the medium that we offer it that is unique and that gives us any competitive advantage when there are so many other um, um, distractions for people's attention? And so thinking about the disruption in that way has made us more specific about what is a movie, what requires <clears throat> a story to be told on a big screen, what's going to compel people to get in their cars and come out and see it. So let's, I want to sort of talk about the, the life cycle of a movie, but starting with the creation of the film itself, how are movies, how is the product changing because of technology? I mean, we all saw Avatar and are waiting to see the next, um, the next incarnation mm-hmm. of Avatar um, from James Cameron at Fox, of course, but how is the product changing because of what you're doing with technology? Well, I think that we've recognized that the competitive advantage we have is to create transportative, immersive, global spectacles. And that in order for them to be value propositions for the audience, they have to be presented in the most cutting, you know, cutting edge way. So um, from the technical side of things, we've got people at the company that are always looking for new filmmaking innovations. And that's an incredible enticement for filmmakers who want to know that the people that they're in business with are speaking the same language. From my end, where I spend so much of my time reading, I mean, that that's probably the, the, the um, skill that I've honed the most over the last 30 years is reading scripts, plays, books, etc. I'm asking myself, will this story lend itself to the incredible technology that the company is investing in? Over the past couple of years, I've gotten to know your VR investment because Fox has really been at the leading edge of VR. Last year, I did a, a demo of the Martian VR experience. This year at CES, I did a Planet of the Apes VR experience, which is still just in its early days, but got a, a hint of what's going on with that. I think it's interesting that you have a VR AR division, and then you also have an R&D division. Why do you have these two divisions? Well, I think that what we're excited about is exploring ways that technology can help us tell different stories, better stories, control the process, and, um, and keep us um, at that competitive edge. I'll, I'll give you, you know, I, I always come at innovation not from trying to prognosticate the future, but just trying to keep myself immersed in culture. And so it often starts with, wow, that was cool. And so when you see a movie um, that you envy, and that's always the first test with me, is do I want to kill myself because we didn't have it? Um, And so when I saw Jungle Book this year, 
It was like, how did they do that? I had read the script. It wasn't nearly as wonderful as the movie um, that John Favreau directed turned out to be. And so I picked up the phone. And I said, how did you do that? It was so incredible, so beautiful, so immersive. And he explained to me a new technology that they had created, which enabled them to put the film up on reels and pre-visualize it and watch it many, many, many times like an animated film and make changes very quickly and then take that finished iterative story reel and shoot and film it in a room half the size of this where the only live action um, element was the little boy. And so the combination of, like, as, a, as a person who's trying to make more immersive and beautiful films and also control for all the things that go sideways, weather, locations, finicky actors, um, you know, overages in terms of time, the control of it was very intriguing. So tell me about this new category of film. So that's the this hybrid. A, so this is the hybrid film. And it's a little bit of live action and a lot of technology. And a lot of technology. I mean, Jim did it the first time with Avatar. Um, and, but it hadn't gotten yet to the point where we could approach it at, at a, uh, in a cost-efficient way. And so now the technology is caught up to that. And if we stockpile which sounds so not creative, but find pursue and pursue with passion um, stories that lend itself to that technology, we can keep almost an assembly line process going that will still be artistic, um, but will take advantage of the marvels that the technology enables. So how important is this category of hybrid film to your studio's future? I mean, is this going to be one of those things well, where over the next five years, a third of your movies are going to be this type of hybrid film or half of them? Well, you know, going back to what you said about how technology, you know, um, affects the decision-making process at a studio, when you look at the top ten films and the concentration that we're seeing in the industry where the top 10 films are either um, family spectacle films like Zootopia and Secret Life of Pets or um, superhero films. It, it, it's imperative that we listen to what the audience is saying, which is that these kinds of family entertainments that travel around the world that offer something that um, you know, wonderful Netflix streaming can't, or listening to Spotify can't, then we need to respond to that demand. So tell me a little bit about Netflix, Amazon. You're now competing with them for the um, sort of the art films, the Sundance films. Now, um, I was just at Sundance, and everyone was talking about how Netflix and Amazon are just jacking up the prices for everyone else. Um, but at, oftentimes, filmmakers will still decide that they want to have a traditional studio um, and not because of any money reason, but because you offer something different. What are you doing to better compete with the Netflix and Amazons of the world for that type of film? Look, they're incredible competitors. And, <clears throat> you know, what, what um, Amazon did, for example, this year with Manchester by the Sea is remarkable. Um, but I was with my colleagues at Sundance this year also, and um, they were able to secure two hotly you know, pursued projects, Step and Patty Cakes, for less money than uh, the competition was offering because there is, 
when it comes to those films, a curated, hand-carried approach to market um, that, that comes with years and years of experience. And it's not to say that it can't be modeled, um, but the people that have been doing it with such incredible success year after year with films like 12 Years a Slave and Wild and Grand Budapest Hotel um, you know, and others um, speak an artist's language that's important to speak. And so when you're trying to appeal to filmmakers, it sounds like the technology piece is an important part of that. But you've also been doing things like you um, created Fox's first brand, chief brand officer, I believe that's a new yeah. position, and you also have a new consumer products, um, a new consumer products chief. Tell me about what you're doing to sort of expand your bre the breadth of what the studio is doing to be more appealing to filmmakers. Well, I, 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 again, I still come at whatever um, impulses towards innovation from the point of view of a purveyor of culture and a fan. Um, you know, I am so busy that it's 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 easy for me to to sample a lot. But it's hard for me to completely surrender to fandom. But I did, and I have on occasion. And I remember going to the finale at, at the um, Hollywood Cemetery for Breaking Bad. And it was one of the greatest experiences that I had, where you just got to completely surrender to being a fan and be surrounded by people that felt great love for this ongoing property. But of course, the executive part of my brain doesn't tune out just because I'm having this experience. And you think, wow, people have spent time, including me, um, you know, just immersing themselves in this story. And it's our obligation then when we make movies, whether it's family movies like Ice Age or, or, or Marvel movies like Logan and X-Men and Deadpool, to offer them that same 365-day-a-year access to the characters and the stories that they love. So that thus was born this idea of not saying goodbye to our fans during those long stretches of time when we're developing sequels. So what is that going to entail? What is that going to look like for a fan? How is Deadpool going to be a, a years-long experience? Well, he's going to pop up in places where you don't expect him. and. Um, uh, you know, in, in many cases, what we're looking at is um, creating experiences that precede and that follow the more traditional um, rollout of a film's um, uh, uh, lifespan. So, for example, at Christmas time, we have a movie coming out that's a big musical with um, Hugh Jackman, Michelle Williams, and Daya, Zach Efron. It's directed by a young filmmaker named Michael Gracie, and it's a, it's a full-on exuberant musical. And one of the things that we're doing is, is recording um, videos of the cast singing songs that can't be found in the movie, so that if you love what you see, sorry about that, if you love what you see in the film, right afterwards you can take something home, you can have some memorabilia. So we're trying to think that of the films as the center of the of the hub, you know the hub, uh, the center and the spokes are other experiences, and each film determines the the, the nature of the different experiences. Tell us about how Step is a good example of that, because that's a documentary, but it has other potential. Well, Step was a film that my colleagues from Searchlight saw at 
Sundance, it was something that um, all the content companies pursued. And um, I think that what, what the company in general could offer these filmmakers was real love and passion for the documentary. There was no denying that, that, that my colleagues will support that documentary um, with, with um, great creativity. At the same time, um, you know, one of Fox's great advantages is that there's no area that we're not in. So whether it's finding the narrative version of the movie, the, if you will, the pitch perfect um, narrative version of the film, it would make a great TV series, it would make a great reality TV series, and it would make a, gr a great Broadway theatrical production. And, and we're active and, and leaders in all of those areas. And so when someone's poured their heart into this little program that, that involves dancing in Baltimore, and they can see that their story will touch so many more people in so many more mediums, that's, that's, that's alluring. And so when you're having those conversations with filmmakers and Amazon and Netflix are offering more money, is it that sort of suite of services that you're offering to them that sets Fox's? Yeah, you know? it excites me. You know, one of the things I'm a... Um, you know, my fix is material, and my fix is talent. And so if, if we're going after, you know, talent is, it's, it's um, finite. You know, you, you just can't decide to be gifted. And so, sadly, um, you know, so when you're out there and you're, you're roping them in and you can point to the incredible work that my colleagues are doing at the network with shows like Empire or that John Landgraf is doing at FX, like you know, Fargo and, and Legion, and you have an animation group and you do in local production in every country around the world, and we have a specialty film group like that does Grand Budapest and Step, and a group that does more modest-sized films like Hidden Figures, and then the main studio that does the Behemoths, you kind of say, why wouldn't you want to play in that sandbox? What about distribution? Breaking the windows. Why can't I pay twice what I would pay to go to a theater and watch Hidden Figures at home opening weekend? Well, and when will I is, be able to? The better question is, when <laughs> will I be able to? There will be no breaking news at this conference. But you know, suffice it to say that we are, um, these conversations <coughs> are, are happening inside and around the, you know, the, the individual companies now as, and as we speak. And I know for me, um, you know, there's certain tropes and there are certain pitch lines that, that get trotted out when, when studio executives talk about windows. And for me, I really have to own it and feel it and believe what I'm saying before I can come out on any stage, even if there's not going to be breaking news to talk about it. And when I think about how Fox is situated compared to Warner Brothers or Comcast or Disney, um, we're more dependent on our exhibitors almost than, than any of the other companies. It really genuinely does matter to us. It's not a platitude. It's not a platitude. We don't have um, the same cable assets. We're not going to be bought by AT&T this week. You know, this and, week, yeah. <laughs> and so that theatrical experience really is important. And at the same time, most of the films, even the big blockbusters, have done 90 to 95% of their business within you know, three or four weeks. Do you think That's that a reality. And so who is it helping to not offer... A, a PVOD earlier, and who is it hurting? 
So do you believe that you could be offering you know, video on demand of movies either the week they open or the week after and it would not impact the box office? Say that again. Would, it, would you be able to offer video on demand, break the window, or, shorten, or, or offer video on demand either the week a movie opens or the week after, and have it not bring down the box office? I don't know. I know that sooner, you know, sooner seems to make sense. But again, as I said, if, if, if the supposition is that the movie business, whatever corner of the market we have, is creating huge, global, big, beautiful cinematic experiences, then the last thing we want to do is commoditize it and make it feel that it is um, interchangeable with the home entertainment experience. So it's not about smashing the window. Maybe it's about opening it up a little. Or tightening it. Or tightening yeah. it, you know? So, so that is, that's my truth, and I think that's the truth of what our, our, our business is. And, and yet, I, I don't think it's controversial to say that for a business to not be able to sell what it makes for periods of time is anachronistic. What's it going to take for things to change? Uh, I think it's going to. I, I think it's going to take an appreciation for that. If we don't speak to consumers' needs, we lose them. You know, when 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 you. If you care about their experience and you care about their avidity, you know, I was a um, just habitual film goer. You know, that's what you did on Friday nights. And I benefited as a studio executive from habitual film going. And then one day I didn't. Then one day I really, really had to earn it. And I was in some ways happy for that challenge because I felt that it made me a better and more creative executive. But that's what the entire industry has to appreciate is that if we don't love them, someone else will. What about the distribution process now? I mean, we're not tightening windows or opening windows, mm -hmm. but um, has social media changed the way you approach the, the theatrical distribution process? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it has in the sense that um, I think we're we're hard, look, it's hard when you love something and you've been really close to a project to step back and assess whether or not it has value and it's a quality offering. But it's our responsibility to do that. And the reason that's important is that social media and Rotten Tomatoes and word of mouth travel so quickly that um, if we can't say at the beginning of a process that we think something has inherent quality, if it feels like a programmer, don't do it, because it's going to be labeled a programmer, and that's easy to, to pass up. Um, at the same time, social media helps when things are great, you know, um, just accelerate excitement and word of mouth. You know, what Ryan Reynolds did for Deadpool, you know, I, we couldn't put a price tag on... on um, the value of, of his viral stunts. So things succeed faster or fail faster because there's sort of more, more of an authenticity to the performance, like right. how well something right. can perform. And, and that's what brings you back to the, the discussion, which we're not going to have further about Windows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, so, but, so, but it is really about, <laughs> message, point taken. But back to, so because it really is about the content and, you know, the good content will, will 
you know, soar faster and the, and the bad content will be um, less successful quicker. Yeah. So sort of you can't, you know, buy those opening weekends that studios used to. Um, but how has content making changed, not just um, with the new hybrid technologies, all this sort of creating hybrid movies, but do you feel like in this, in this era of the Trump presidency, you're changing your thoughts on what type of content you want to make or what type of audience you want to serve or is being underserved? I, th I think that we're, mo we're way more aware of, of what our competitors offer and that we have to offer something different. So I'm, I'm much more conscious of um, what it, what's, what's binge-worthy and what's going to take the consumer's attention. I'm, I'm aware that attention is currency, and that compels me and drives me more than than pockets of, of attendees and, and the audience. At the same time, I'm really very aware that I live in LA, in a bubble, that, that I'm speaking to like-minded people that we often share the same point of view. And my responsibility is to make a broad slate of films that appeal to a broad group of people. So pushing myself and pushing our team to be inclusive and to think about different perspectives and points of view is essential, or we will be just too you know, hip for our own good. Um, tell me about the success of Hidden Figures. Was that a surprise to you? It was a lovely surprise. You know, it, I, We all knew that it was an incredible story, and I, I, I love watching when, when a company goes beyond what's required. You know, you just kind of step back and you can see all the departments lift off the ground because they feel great dedication to, to the work and to the project. So we knew that it was such a worthy story. We were shocked by it. How could this, this story of these women in the space program have remained hidden for as long as it did? And one of the um, kind of most fun and, and scariest part of, of, of a studio executive's job is when you take it you know, out into the field for the first time and you take it you know, to, a, to a mall with you know, sticky floors and, and stale popcorn. It's not all very glamorous. And just put it out there. And the response was wonderful. You know, it was warm and wonderful. And I think we just have been surprised at how broadly it's played. And you've, you had a sort of a viral... Um, a viral spread of it, um, which was really led by the, the talent in the film. Exactly. Well, uh, we, we knew there are certain properties that have inherent stakeholders. You just can, you can discuss them and know that academics, NASA, politicians, teachers, code, code writers, that they, we knew that there were going to be affinity groups that would do our jobs for us in terms of spreading word of mouth and evangelicalizing the film. What was stunning, though, is when the talent um, got involved on their own to make the film more available to people that didn't have the resources to see it. And it, and it started with Octavia Spencer, who bought out a theater in, I think, Baldwin Hills in a, a low-income area. And she did it because she said that you know, her mother wouldn't have been able to afford tickets to see the film. You know, and it, it just knocked me out that she did that. It wasn't, it wasn't arranged. And, it, you know, as social media happens, it inspired others to do the same. There's been a lot of conversation about how that film with these 
um, African-American female leads was reaching an audience that many people in Hollywood didn't sort of know would be going to, to, to movies in such great numbers and sort of this, the value of that diversity. Um, on the flip side, I'm hearing a lot of questions and seeing articles written about whether there is a different audience. There is a sort of the, the Trump supporter audience that Hollywood didn't, maybe didn't realize was there um, in such great numbers who now there will be more films made for. You know, again, like I said, I feel like it's our obligation if you're going to be involved in culture to, to, to be inclusive and not to make people feel excluded. Um, and I don't mean this in a cheeky way or in any disparaging way, but, you know, on Monday mornings, we have a distribution meeting where we review all the, the performance of the movies, you know, and we dive deeply into not, not only how our films perform, but how our competitors' film perform and where they performed. And so it, it, it surprised me um, when my colleague, who's head of domestic distribution, told me that um, Fifty, Shades of, of, Fifty Shades Darker um, played best in the Bible Belt. So go figure, you know. Um, something for everybody. Something for everybody. And so, you know, I, I always have felt that when I try to calculate a creative choice from the outside in, I face plant. Whenever I've said, oh, this will appeal to that group, or this is a no-brainer because it has these elements, I'm almost always disappointed. And when something comes from the inside out and it's moved you, or, or I see my colleagues moved, and by the transitive property, their excitement means that I have to believe in it. Um, it's almost always um, uh, a pure and more successful experience. No one involved with Hidden Figures said, wow, we're going to go make a movie designed for the African-American female audience. What they said is, holy shit, can you believe that this story happened and hasn't been told, and isn't it dramatic, and isn't it wonderful? So you haven't made any changes, or your boss, Rupert Murdoch, hasn't asked for any changes in terms of the types of films he wants developed now? Never, never has, and I can't imagine that he ever would. So you guys don't talk politics? We don't talk politics, and in fact, what, what is... It, look, the proof is in the pudding. Um, the, the, the company invests a ton of dough in the things in, in a variety and volume of content and encourages big swings. I've had more touchy conversations with my bosses about why we took on a partner than why we lost money. So our competitive advantage is um, enticing the best talent on the planet to make their movies and TV shows at Fox, and the company has given all of us the resources for that volume and variety. So that surprised me when I was recruited to work there, um, but it's, it, was, it spoke to me. Um, before we open up for questions, I want to bring the conversation back to what we start off on, which is technology and the culture of the company. When you think about building a film studio for the next five years, how, what is the culture of the company going to look like, and how is that studio going to be different than what we think of as a movie studio today? 
Well, the, the, I have worked um, at every studio except um, MGM, so I always say I'm the, I'm the promiscuous studio <laughs> executive, and I can feel the different cultures. You know, um, you know, when I was at Universal, the GE culture, you know, that, that kind of top-down um, conglomerate approach was, was palpable. And at, at Fox, that it was built by entre an entrepreneur and, and in the stewardship of great entrepreneurs is palpable. And it coincides with my own management style, which is decentralized. And so I think that when, when and I think this has always been Fox's history, that if people want to create a lab or people want to um, uh, invest in hybrid technology or, or experiment with VR, Write a business plan. Ask, you know, tell us how much is needed to invest and how you're going to get the money back. I mean, we definitely feel the pressure of where's my money at the end of the process. But the, the idea that individual executives can be passionate about something and present it as a, an initiative. So more entrepreneurial. Yeah. Um, and what happens in that in that R and D lab? Because if the, if all the VR AR stuff is separate now, what's the most exciting thing happening in that R and D lab now? I think the the well, look, the R and D lab encompasses you know a anything that that can make an enhanced experience for our consumers. So whether it is um, movies anywhere on on Samsung TV, so that we can offer. Um, our content more directly to consumers, that's something that would be incubated in the lab. Um, uh, you know, VR experiences are incubated in the lab. Um, we're, uh, new technology for, for next Avatar films, you know, how we can take what we learned from the first movie that was trial by error and create, you know, technologies and feedback loops that make it Systematic without making it less creative. So, um, you know, there's a whole host of executives that are thinking about how to make the experience better. It's very cool. Um, let's open up to some questions. Hey, I'm Jason Peterson. I run a company called Go Digital. Uh, I started my career as a film producer, and and we used to talk about film ultimate revenue and uh, from the perspective of a multiple of box office revenues as the Digital paradigm shift has transformed the industry. How have those multiples of box office revenue changed for a studio like Fox? I, I, I don't think it's measurable enough now. I mean, it still is that the theatrical experience is where that multiple is derived. I mean, what we've seen is the growth in international, and that has you know, expanded the multiple. But the home entertainment you know, is flat. So the digital offerings have yet to propel or expand that multiple. Hi, uh, Robert Leon. Uh, what's your favorite movie? Wow. Um, well, let me just say this, that I think it's important that you love what you, you do and you're lucky when you do love what you do. So, um, you know, in terms of my, ex I, I was lucky enough to work with Steven Spielberg for eight years, and he was um, the best film prof a girl could have. And so part of what bonded us was, his, was watching you know, classic films all the time. And so there's a whole 
list from best years of our lives to searchers to the cowboys to really classic movies. And if left alone on a Saturday night, with no, which nothing makes me happier, I will text my film professor and say, what should I watch tonight? And he will say, you know, there's a, you know, a new version of and, you know, text me afterwards. In terms of the films that I've made, um, I, I made a movie back in the day at TriStar called Philadelphia with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. And it was a really transformative experience for me and very, very meaningful. And I felt lucky that I got to be a young executive near it. It's an amazing movie. All right, thanks, Julia. So Stacy, this is not meant negatively towards Fox, but if you look across the whole industry, you know, Disney, I think last year put up $3 billion of domestic box office on, I think like 13 films. And that was essentially double Fox's box office, 50% or, you know, I think 50% larger than Warner Brothers box office. And they put out like double the number of films of Disney. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and, and Beauty and the Beast are testing off the charts. Like, is Disney just, like, is it Disney and then everybody else? Or is there something, like, is there something special that you think Disney is now insurmountable? Or is this just a traditional cycle and they're just, it's just a more magnified than it has been in the past? I guess, you know, there, there seems to be some level of batting average that they seem to be defying all historic logic for multiple years in a row. And I'm just wondering, like, how you, looking across so many different studios that you've worked at, like, what's going on in the industry right now? Well, I think that whether it was, you know, prescience or, or um, you know, opportunistic, that the convergence of those acquisitions right at the time when um, the film business had to differentiate itself was um, Bob, Iger, Bob Iger's master stroke. So, you know, recognizing the power of brands and, and that these experiences needed to be ginormous and global to differentiate themselves was an absolute master stroke and also supremely expensive. Um, and so I think the rest of the industry has adjusted and, and taken the lessons from it with less, um, you know, corporate investment and with different situations. You know, when I was at Universal, we, we had to home grow franchises, and I was lucky or dumb enough to, to have greenlit Fast and Furious and the Bourne series and American Pie and Meet the Parents, and a franchise at that point was just the second movie after the first one that people really, really, really liked. Um, at, at Fox, we are really lucky to have a deep library. So we have all of the Marvel um, X-Men and Fantastic Four universe. We've got this young fella, Jim Cameron, who's you know a, a uh, maestro and always pushing the boundaries. We have the Alien franchise, Kingsman. So I think that um, we are adjusting our production plans to what's working, and we work and Disney has the advantage of having seen that trend and buying those brands. And maybe just a follow up on that, when you think about the superhero genre, you know, are we hitting peak superhero genre? Like can this can we have every movie every weekend be a superhero? Well, you know, one of the things that I, I'm so proud of at Fox is, you know, and it, it sounds it sounds silly and, 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 and um, highfalutin, but we, 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 we do talk about how to differentiate 
our product from, from the competition and, and where, these, where these stories would naturally evolve. So, so that Deadpool could be as irreverent and self-knowing and cheeky as it was, um, was by design. It was saying, how can we differentiate ourselves? What can we do that they can't do? They can't do an R-rated um, superhero movie. It would, it would destroy the castle. Um, when, you know, we've got a movie coming up called Logan, which is the last Wolverine film. And, and inside, and maybe even outside of the company, but probably more inside, there was real consternation about the intensity of the tone of the film, and that it's more of an elegy about life and death. <coughs> and the paradigm for it is, is a Western, and my colleagues were up in arms. It needs to be wisecracking, cigar chomping, mutton chops, you know, sporting Wolverine. And the debate internally then became, but isn't that freaking boring? You know, isn't it exciting? to imagine that Wolverine is a real guy and he's world weary and he doesn't want to fight anymore until a little girl needs him. And so we're trying to acknowledge that the form is valid, but that within that form, great creativity is required. Thanks. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm sorry. I see there are flashing zeros up here. Okay. But that was a perfect note to end on the form, um, the formal involved. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Stacey. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. You can find all the podcasts from Code Media and our other conferences at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. Or just go to Recode.net for full coverage of the Code Media Conference. If you like this sort of interviews, then good news. We do interviews just like them every week on Recode's free podcasts. I host Recode Decode and co-host Too Embarrassed to Ask with Lauren Good of The Verge. And the producer of Code Media, Peter Kafka, has new interviews with the smartest people from the media world every Thursday on Recode Media. You can find all these shows on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Or just go to recode.net slash podcasts.